We're back at Romans. Aren't you glad to be back at Romans? Let's go to Romans 12. We're going to look at 9 through 21. Several years ago, Nancy and I read Dostoevsky's classic, The Brothers Karamazov, uh, together. Anybody read that? Bless you, you poor people. Um, Nancy loved it, and that's when I began to suspect, I think she's got Russian blood in her, right? Because it's just so relationally intense. It's just so relational. The, the dynamics of describing the relationships and the, the nature of people and all of that, it's exhausting for me. So me, on the other hand, I kept thinking, how many pages are left in this thing? And it's a monster of a book. It's like that. It could be a nice doorstop. It could hold up a window. You could build a house around it. It's a huge book. Uh, but Musoff is a character in the book. And strangely, we're allowed into his head. You're allowed, and I'm allowed as a reader, to hear his thoughts. And you hear him think more than you see him speak in the whole book. And the thoughts that are running through his head are a running commentary of this inflated view he has of himself and this deflated view he has of other people. But here's the check. In his relationships and in his interdynamics with people, his thoughts don't come out. Candy comes out. He's so sweet. He has these just these sweet words for people. And he portrays himself as such a sweet person. Eventually, though, the narrator, I think, gets as fed up with him as you, the reader, do, because I was tired of him after the first time I heard about him. I don't know, maybe he was just too convicting or revealing. I don't know. But finally, the narrator says this about him. Musaf loves the world. It's people he doesn't like. He loves the world. He just doesn't like people. Um... When relationships and communities emphasize traditional values, family values, Judeo-Christian values, there is a real temptation and there's an easy drift for that community to become a culture of niceness. Candy on the outside, sweet, warm, political, friendly, cold on the inside, right? Disdain, suspicion, insecure, backbiting, gossiping, slandering. Well, Paul, in this passage, gives us a whole completely different view of how to do relationships and how to do community. Kind of one of our buzzwords that we're going to be talking about. We talked about last week, and we're, Scott's going to do a whole section on it in the spring and in the summer. Reenchantment. Paul is going to reenchant our relationships. Please stand for the hearing of God's Word. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Would you give clarity to the mind, realness to the heart? Oh Lord, would you work the realities of this passage deep into our life by the power of your spirit? We ask this in your name, amen. So relationships, right? So relationships would be so meaningful and so life-giving if it just wasn't for the people, right? Uh, Romans 12, 9 through 21 is about relationships. So in Romans 1 through 8, Paul is asking, what is the gospel? Romans 9 through 11, can this gospel fail? Romans 12 through 16, what is a gospel life? So if you take Romans 1 through 8 and you actually believe it, what would your life look like? If the gospel transforms our life, what would it look like? So we're in a new section of Romans starting today, Romans 12. Uh, we've already recently looked at Romans 12, the first verses 1 through 8. So here's the deal. Um, I want you to hit the website on that. Here are some of the main ideas. If you look at verses 1 through 12, you're getting a snapshot, a summary of the gospel life. All right, here's your picture. This is a gospel life. Then you're going to look at how it impacts your identity in verse 3. And then in verse 4 through 8, you're going to see how it impacts your church identity. All right, so you get the picture. What Paul wants to do right from the beginning, a gospel life, here it is, in summary form. This is what it looks like in your identity. This is what it looks like in your church identity now in 9 through 21. Here's what it looks like in your relationships or your community. How does the gospel transform our relationships? Look at 12.9. Let love be genuine. Here's a literal translation. The love, genuine. The love, definite article, the love. <laughs> the love that is manifested in chapters 1 through 8, the love of this incredible mercy and this incredible grace, the love of this sacrificial redeemer. This love is only the reality of what God has towards his people. And as it gets a hold of his people, it starts transforming his people. And as it overflows into his people, it goes into their relationships. The love is genuine. There are no verbs here. There are no main verbs here. There are no imperatives here. There are no imperatives, no verbs in the first 9 through 14 verses. They're adjectives. They're participles, all modifying, all describing the wonder of the love. Genuine means sincere. It means true to the heart. It means not musaf. 
It means not candy on the outside and disdain on the inside. It means real love. Real love. Romans 9, I mean Romans 12, 9 through 21, God is calling us to real relationships and real communities that are built around real love. So what is real love? How do you know when you have it? How do you know that you're genuinely loving someone? How do you know that you're building your relationships and you're developing a community, whether it's in your small groups or it's in your parenting or it's in your marriages or it's in your friendships or it's at work or it's on the ball field or it's in the art class or it's in the music room. How do you know that you're building genuine relationships, real relationships around love? How do you know that? Well, today it's pretty indisputable, isn't it? What the answer to that is? You know it because love is a feeling. So if you feel love, you love someone. If you don't feel love, you don't love someone. And that's why generally at times, um, married couples will come to me at times, and one of them will say, listen, I just don't love the other person anymore. I just don't love them anymore. The feeling's gone. So it's time for me to move on to someone else. And this is why unmarried couples live together and act like they're married because, listen, who needs, who needs an ancient ritual and a piece of paper to tell us how we feel? We love each other. And so what happens in love is a feeling. All relational exchanges and interactions are all based on how everybody feels and everybody's trying to maximize a good feeling in everybody. So in parenting, you won't challenge or in parenting, you won't move because you want to feel good. You want your kids to feel good. Everybody's about feeling good all the time. Now, church people, though, have the opposite problem, right? George Whitfield was a leader in the Great Awakening, and he met a woman named Elizabeth Delamonte in 1739, and I mean, he fell in love with her. It was love at first sight. Uh, however, here's what he did. He deliberately suppressed all his romantic feelings for her. Any passionate feelings, he suppressed. He checked. He wouldn't let out because he was pursuing what he thought was a more spiritual love. So you know what he did? He proposed to her. How did he propose to her? He proposed to her by a letter. Oh, yeah. Uh, George Marsden is a historical giant, and his monster biography on Jonathan Edwards, definitive biography on Jonathan Edwards, highly recommend it. Uh, he describes Whitfield's letter, his proposal letter, this way. That nothing could hold, Whitfield says, that nothing could hold the marriage together but the mutual love of Christ. That's good. And that Elizabeth should expect hardship and suffering. <laughs> Elsewhere, he had remarked that a wife should not cause him to preach one less sermon. So how did Elizabeth respond? What did she do? She rejected his invitation, obviously, right? I mean, good night. Oh, my word. She turned him down. This inspired me because I remember reading it a couple, two, I think it was about five years ago, reading it. And then when I looked at it again this week, I decided that we're going to add a section to the curriculum, brother, for the Center for Gospel Communication, specifically for unmarried young men pursuing the ministry. I'm going to title it WWW. DN question mark. 
What would Whitfield do now? I mean, oh my word. Many of us in the church think love is just a choice. Love's a decision. Love's an action. Right now, you can go to any bookstore, because I've seen the titles, Christian bookstores, and you could see, let me put another emotion in there, joy. Joy is a choice. Joy is a decision. Happiness. Happiness is a choice. Happiness is a decision. Peace. Peace is a choice. Peace is a decision. What is real love? Is real love affection? Is it feeling? Is real love action? Is it a choice, a decision? And the Apostle Paul says, yeah, it's both. It's both simultaneously, at the same time, concurrently, always. Look at Romans 12, 9 again. The love, genuine. The love, real. What's real love? Keep going, verse 9. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Abhor. Abhor literally means to hate with such vitriol. It's hate on steroids. It's so vehement. It's so passionate. It's so over the top. It is detestable. I challenge you to have, it's a strong emotion. I challenge you to have an abhorrent feeling without an abhorrent action. There's no such thing. Abhorrence carries with it. That emotion carries with it an abhorrent set of actions. They go together. If you look at hold fast, so you'd abhor evil. You abhor evil, detest it. Wherever you find it, the real love looks at it and abhors it. It despises it in itself, in the world, and everywhere it's seen. But then you got hold fast is literally cling to. It's joined to. It's the word used for marital union. It's to describe sexual union, marital union. It's as intimate as it possibly can be. Hold fast is a strong action that carries strong feelings and emotions and affections with it. You cannot have clinging, holding fast, marital-like action union without having the passion behind it. Real love is both affection, feeling, and action doing against evil and for the good. So what Paul does next in the rest of the passage is what he does is he unpacks what real love looks like in practical examples. And that's why you have this laundry list of examples, this laundry list of case studies, this laundry list of how it works itself out in specific examples. Now, some folks say there are 12, some folks say there are 20. It depends how you group them. We don't have time to go through them all. So we're going to, I chose three, okay? So here's the three. I want you to look at verse 10. You ready? Outdo one another in showing honor. So real relationships look like bending. I will bend to lift you up. Paul comes up to the church. He comes up to us and says, look, you guys are so competitive. Mm -hmm. 
Guys generally feel this more than women do. I, I don't know. I mean, generally speaking, please. Generally speaking. Generally speaking. Um, we are competitive. We are competitive people. And Paul's saying, let's stop comparing, competing, measuring yourself with each other, with one another. Instead, if you want to compete, compete in out-honoring each other. Be the best bending person on the planet. Start outdoing each other and lifting each other up. So marriages compete, compete to out-honor each other. Parenting, compete, but compete to out-honor each other. And here's just a little, little, I don't know, I got a little life experience with five kids, a little life experience of living in community, a little life experience. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna cash that in today, can I? Here it is. Um, adults, we demand to be honored and respected by youth and children, right? Here's the deal. They need to be respected and honored too. What if you out-honored them? You know what would happen? You'd get the honor and respect that you long for. Whether it's in an institution or whether it's in a relationship, how can we as adults sit here and demand honor and respect and disrespect kids all the time? Just food for thought. So he, see, Paul's saying, look, see, outdo each other in giving honor. I want you to see who can bend the most. That's what he's saying. You want competition? Compete over that. Look at verses 11 and 12. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Real relationships look like working at it. Real relationships don't just happen, Paul is saying. That's what he means by do not be slothful in zeal or fervent in spirit. This does not mean get off the couch. This means work hard at your relationships. The context is about relationships, not stop watching Netflix so much. Here's the, it's to stir up your spirit, your affection and your action in your relationships. Don't be slothful in your affections and your actions in relationships. Work hard, and then 12 tells you why you need to work hard in relationships or even how specifically it looks like. Look, it means keep your hope in relationships. It means be patient or endure the messes of your relationships. It takes hard work in relationships, and the temptation always in your relationships is to lose heart. Keep your hope, Paul says. Endure, endure the messes. Don't give up, endure. And then all of this is addressed with prayer and by prayer to God, the whole thing. Work hard, pray to keep hope, pray to endure, pray to hang in there and not give up. Why? Because that's how I love you. C.S. Lewis pointed out that the only way to not have your heart broken is to never give it away. Real relationships and real community is always giving your heart away. 
This means your heart will always get broken. This means we are called then in the midst of that dynamic to keep hope, to not give up, endure the messes, endure the pain, endure the hardship, keep pressing through, and in all of it, address it all with prayer. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Real relationships look like losing to win. The one who loses in a relationship wins. The one who wins in a relationship loses, according to Paul. How are we overcome? It's a military word, that word overcome in that passage. It means to be obliterated, destroyed, defeated. It means to be wiped out. It means to be murdered, killed. It means for you to lose yourself, to be dominated. How are we overcome by evil in our relationships? Paul says, by winning. By paying back. Evil for evil. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 18, if possible, so far it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourself. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. There's this Quaker, his name's um, Clyde Murdoch. He owns this very honorary cow called Obasi. Uh, milking all Obasi for Mr. Murdoch is always uh, a challenge. It's always a battle of the wills. So on this particular morning, he assessed Obasi and knew she was in an incredibly foul mood, and he determined right there on the spot before God and before the chickens as his witness, I will not... I will not lose my cool. I will not get angry. I will not return evil for evil. The problem was Obasi had different plans. And Obasi, as soon as he got in there, stepped on his foot with all, all her weight. And he groans like a martyr but doesn't say a word. Pulls his foot out. Obasi takes her tail and starts whipping him in the face. And he leans back. So the tail whizzes by. Obasi waits till the milk is about, oh, yay, far from the top, just about to grab it and pull it out. She kicks it. He starts to cuss, but he cuts it off, right? Because he's not going to do it. He's going to keep his cool. He finally survives the milking. He finishes, he sighs, he picks up his bucket, picks up the stool, and he heads out the door. And that's when old bossy kicks him. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing, but kicks him. I mean, real good. So hard he hits the barn wall, which is 10 feet away. He gets up. That's it. It's over. The Quaker's done. He gets up, and he looks old bossy in those brown eyes, points his bony little finger, and this is what he says. Thou dost know it that I'm a Quaker. Thou dost know that I cannot strike thee back, but I can sell thee to a Presbyterian. (laughs) 
I love that one so much, I could end here in prayer. <laughs> Just for some of us that aren't familiar with Presbyterian ways, let me clarify, please. There are things called interpersonal sins and evils that we do to each other. That's what we think the Scriptures are teaching, that you turn the other cheek, that you bless, that you don't avenge, you don't seek to win. But then there's a whole other level called criminal evil, whether on an interpersonal level or a civil level, and we're going to look at that actually in Romans 13, that the sword is there for a reason, and you restrain that kind of evil, okay? So that's where the Presbyterian stuff comes in, because we, I guess we believe that stuff. All right, one Roman scholar says this about this passage. He says, so the secret of overcoming evil is for us to see evil as something above and distinct from the evildoer. Okay. Our basic goal is to forgive, love, and show kindness to the evildoer. When we do, there are two results. First, the spread of evil is checked in us. I think that's wonderful. It's hatred and pride do not infect us. We're not overcome by evil. Second, the spread of evil may be checked in the evildoer. He or she may be softened and helped by our love, whether it's in words or in deeds or restraint. Paul says that our good deeds and words could heap burning coals on their head, which is a way of saying that repentance may occur in them. Paul says that winning in our relationships is losing. If you lose, you win, and possibly you win them too. If you win, you lose, and so do they. Some of us have questions. I know I've got tons of questions about this passage, don't you? Here are three that came to mind, and we're going to end by looking at these three questions. Uh, what do you do, though, when, you're, when your heart or your, your affections and your actions don't match? What do you do? What do you do when you know you should do it because it's the right thing, it's the good, but you don't want to do it? If you do it, you're a hypocrite. If you don't do it, well, you just sin twice now. What do you do? Second question, how do we love people we don't like? How do we love people we just have a hard time with? And I'm trying not to look at anybody when I say that, because you're thinking, he has a hard time with me. How do you love people who hurt you And last question, how do we keep from being overcome by evil? I mean, how does that happen? It's one thing to exhort you and tell you and describe for you that this is the way we're supposed to act. This is how we're supposed to relate. It's another thing to actually do it. How do you do it? How do you do it inside the church? How do you do it outside the church? Okay? All right, here's the first question. What do you do when you know something is right and good, but you don't feel like doing it? Here's what we do. It's a summary of all that Paul has described so far. It's all that's gone on in Romans and what he said in other letters. Here's a summary of it. You honestly confess your cold heart as sin before God. When your heart is not in what you know is good in any relationship, you confess honestly your cold heart before God as sin because it is. Because love is affection and action. You don't lop that off and start working on your action. That's why many of us think that we're actually loving people because we think we're love is a choice, love is an action. But you got a cold heart. If love is affection and action, who? Who has that kind of love? 
all the time. And so we're constantly driven to Jesus over and over again, just in our interpersonal relationships. So you honestly say, you're right, Lord, Lord, I have a cold heart. And then you petition grace. You say, oh, God, help me. Help them. Help me have a heart that's warm and soft towards them. And then you just go do it. But see, if you don't just go, if you just go do it without going through that process, you are a hypocrite. And you're musoff. Candy on the outside, disdain on the inside. And whether we realize it or not, when we have relationships like that, it does get felt. And see, here's what happens. This whole process of confessing honestly your cold heart and then, um, and then honestly asking God for help and then the action, all of that stuff together is how God starts softening our heart. In this process, and there's no particular order, but in this process of interacting with God, whether it's confessing or petitioning and then doing it, in that process, He works and softens our hearts. Okay, how do we love people we don't like, people we have a hard time with, people who have hurt us and still do? The only way, the only way, according to Paul, is right at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 12. The only way is a gospel life. The only way to live a gospel life is in view of God's mercies. Do you see that? See, what Paul has done is he just summarizes chapters 1 through 8, all the wonders of the gospel, good news, not good advice, righteousness received, not righteousness achieved, a grace salvation, not a self-salvation. All of that he summarizes as the mercies of God, the multiple mercies of God. And he says, in view of the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Snapshot. In view of the mercies of God, obey. In view of the mercies of God, love people you don't like. There is no obedience. There is no generosity. There is no law-keeping. There is no offering of your life. There is no loving hard people without, in view, the mercies of God in your life. Mercy is loving in affection and action, the unlovely. Mercy is loving in affection and action, the messed up. This is how God loves us. God's mercy is not based on our attractiveness or our loveliness. God's mercy is based on his mercy. And watch this. His love and his mercy is towards the unlovely. And when it reaches us, it makes us lovely. The way you and I grow, the way you and I change is by being loved by God. And when I get loved, I become lovely. How do we keep from being overcome by evil, both inside and outside the church? This answer is going to surprise you, so just hold your seat a little tighter. Make room for the wrath of God. 
Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourself. Because if you do, you'll be overcome by evil. That's what he means. But instead, if you don't want to be overcome by evil, if you want to win in the battle against evil, leave room for the wrath of God. I mean, what's the wrath of God? The wrath of God is, um, is God repaying all evil, God destroying all evil, God punishing all evil, God wiping every tear off the planet, and God wiping every hostility and everything that ravages anything that's lovely and good and true. It's God cleansing, God eliminating, God being what you and I long for. That's why guys watch hero movies, because the bad guys are going to get it in the end. And the better and the nastier, the better. The wrath of God is God making everything, as Tolkien would say, everything sad, untrue. It's God dealing with, it's in other words, every time you and I turn on a headline and we see something go on in the world and we hear of such a horrific accident or so horrific event, what, it, what goes on inside of us? We all scream for justice. How long, oh God? Do you not care? Do you not see? Are you just going to turn your eye and God's saying, no. 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 I love you and I love my world so much, I'm going to sell it and remove it forever. There's a guy named Miroslav Volf who is a Croatian, is a Croatian. And he says that those that talk about um, passivity, passivism, uh, have never lived in a war-torn country where your mothers and your daughters are raped. And he's a theologian up at Yale. Um, and here's what he says. The only way that can keep him and keep anybody in those particular situations is those of you that are safe in the East or in the West, those of you that have never suffered that kind of evil, don't talk to me about being pacifistic. Don't talk to me about not avenging. But when you've been where I've been, you can talk to me. And he says, the only way I can't pick up the sword and go play judge is if I know God has it. That's the only way. It's interesting. Uh, make room for the wrath of God. This, what this means is you make room for the wrath of God at the cross for you and me. See what happens here? What happens is, is that God repays all our evil on Jesus and let that soften your heart and also let that empower your heart, strengthen your heart to not repay. But also you... You make room for the wrath of God on the cross for them. If they're Christians, you... I mean, think about this. And this, I had to think about this. For reasons, right? Because we all have reasons. If they're Christians and they've offended you and they've done evil against you and they're not repenting or whatever, you know that all their payment landed on Jesus on the cross and so you don't have to pay back. It's been paid. 
And then if they're not Christians, possibly, possibly your interaction could be a part of them actually seeing the wrath of God poured out on Jesus for them. But then ultimately you make room for the wrath of God at the end of all things because all accounts will be settled. So we've turned a corner, right? We've entered into a gospel life. We've seen what a gospel life is in Snapshot, if you need to go to the website. We've seen it in identity, church's identity. This morning, we looked at relationships. Next week, I mean, it's like, gosh, I cannot wait to be done with Romans. Next week, we look at civil government, politics, wonderful. If Romans 9 through 11 wasn't enough, we're going to look at Romans 13 next week. So, and it's one service, so we'll see you at 10.